So uh, I don't know exactly when the last time uh, we taught on homosexuality, uh, gay marriage uh, in particular, but one thing that I do know um, is that it's certainly more normal, that is, it has become more uh, normalized than the last time that it was spoken about here. So what I mean by that is that uh, it has, there have been days that have passed since that time that homosexuality and gay marriage has been the norm of our country. And so I think, and you can see it really with a lot of uh, younger believers, kind of this, this idea of the normalcy of homosexuality. Not, that's not to say that they believe that it's not a sin, but it's just a very normal part of life. It's a, a normal part of our political scheme. It's, it's a normal part of legislation that gay marriage is the law of the land. And so I think that with something like homosexuality, we can come topically to Scripture and we can say, well, we really know biblically what the Bible says. We know where we stand. We can make all of the arguments. But I think the fact that it becomes more and more normal in our country beckons us to continue the conversation, to have times of biblical refreshment on this particular topic and to just continue an ongoing discussion about it. Uh, at large. And so that's what I want to do this evening. I, I, I want to try to get through this very quickly. And so, I mean, I either have like 20 minutes worth of material or three and a half hours. I don't know. Um, but this is the crux of being a preacher. These are my normal size notes. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, we could do about three days here. Um, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 27. Here's, here's the heart of the conversation that I want us to have. So I want this to be conversational, and so I want to get done quickly so we can kind of talk and you can have some questions, maybe even some clarifications, or some insight that I don't actually have to the topic itself. So Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. My desire for us this evening is that we may live as those who inquire of the Lord and that we eagerly expect that he will reveal his plan, his desire, and his will to us and how we're to live. So my desire this evening is to not come and just tear apart this uh, controversial topic. It's to actually come to Scripture and be informed as to how we are to view it, and then how we are to live and engage the world based on how we are informed by the Bible. My desire is that we would all walk away loving God and loving others better. So in particular, our homosexual, physical, literal brothers and sisters, moms and dads, nieces and nephews, aunts and uncles, whoever they may be in your life, that you would learn not an argument, but that you would learn to inquire of the Lord to see how you are to love people. I think that's what we should do. So John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, yeah, I got there. The topic of homosexuality, I brought in John Calvin. I can bring him anywhere. The Institutes of the Christian Religion, under the heading of the life of the Christian man, under the subheading, motives for the Christian life, he says this, The scriptural instruction of which we speak has two main aspects. The first is that the love of righteousness to which we are otherwise not at all inclined by nature may be instilled and established in our hearts. 
The second, that a rule be set forth for us that does not let us wander about in our zeal for righteousness. So I want to become more righteous tonight. I want us to, to pursue righteous better. I want us to desire righteous to a greater degree tonight. And I don't want us to just flippantly pursue righteousness in the world as if we are just grasping and grabbing for righteousness wherever it may be. It is clear what righteousness is as it is given and related to us in the Word of God. So that's what we're going to do this evening as we seek to live our Christian lives better. So let's look first at uh, biblical and theological groundings of homosexuality. So I don't want to really proof text anything, though I believe you can. I think you can go into the Bible in any um, given number of places and find a text that addresses the topic of homosexuality. But what I really want to do is I want to look in Genesis chapter 2. I want us to see that the idea of human sexuality, and in particular homosexuality, is informed by the creation mandate, or what I would claim is the the creation covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. So he covenanted himself to Adam and Eve that they would live in community with him on the basis of obeying his instruction. And so here, I think, is the litmus test for understanding every moral good in the world as it relates to sexuality. So let's look at uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Right? He's just created Adam out of the dust. And he says, it's not good that he should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. Then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here we have the standard of sexuality that glorifies God. So we see that God's creation standard, when everything was good, we're, we're pre-Genesis 3, we're pre-fall, we see that what God is doing is establishing union between man and woman, right? At, at one point, there, there are all these other creatures that are actually considered technically whether or not they're good enough to be with man. And all of the beasts are not good. They're not fit to be a helper for this man. And so God says, well, I will create a woman. I will create someone else in my likeness and in my image to complement this man. And so any discussion of sexuality, at least at this point, has to be understood in the fact that God created a man and he created a woman and he gave that woman to that man. So there are really no gray areas at this point, right? I, I don't think that you... I mean, maybe some liberal theologian somewhere could parse this out and find some gray area as to what man can do. But it's pretty clear that a man will leave his wife. Or That's not true. Don't ever do that. <laughs> a man will leave his parents. A woman will leave her parents, and they will be bound together in covenant. That matches the covenant 
that they are in with God Himself. But you have a good question. But hasn't the fall into sin distorted all good things? Well, the answer is obviously yes. The fall into sin has distorted every good thing. But there is one qualification. The distortion of a thing does not necessitate the nullification of it. In other words, we find no other place in Scripture where the creation covenant is nullified or modified or expanded to include other avenues of sexuality. So what I'm telling you is that this covenant with man, this mandate to marry and to multiply and to cultivate and subdue the earth, there is no other text of Scripture in the Bible that says, actually, that's not what you need to do. You need to do this. I want you to marry men and men or, or women and women, or I want none of you to have sex and for you to just die off. That's not the mandate. The mandate, the standard, is to have a husband and a wife procreate and multiply and fill the earth with the goodness that God gave them. And so here's, here's an important theological point. This covenant, right, we, we, we look at this mandate that God has given them, and th there's an important point to make in terms of being good Bible interpreters. It would be very easy for us to go in Scripture and find some text somewhere and create an argument as to why this is no longer the standard. But to be a good Bible interpreter is to understand the covenants of God. That is, that God relates to His people through covenants. He reveals Himself through a covenants. He gives His law through covenants. He gives His standard of living through covenants, His desire, His will. He gives Himself to His people in covenants, and He asks them to bind themselves to Him via covenant. And so the only thing that can change, nullify, modify a covenant is another covenant. So whenever you hear the argumentation of, well, Jesus doesn't ever actually explicitly talk about homosexuality. Well, that's fine, but does the new covenant erase the covenant God made with Adam and Eve? And the answer is no, it does not. So let's just be good Sunday school Bible interpreters, right? Covenants are the things that reveal God's progressive revelation. So whenever we see the law and we say, well, the law is not really good. It, it was just a teacher. Jesus is better. Well, how do we know that? because the new covenant tells us. Not because there's some text in Scripture that proof, proves that. It's because God has revealed His progression that way, and God does not progressively reveal a deeper understanding of sexuality apart from man and woman. So let's stay simplistically there. Uh, in a good book, if you are a bookish person and like to read, Michael Hill has a, a great book on Christian ethics, and it's called The How and Why of Love. And in that, he says this about the creation covenant. The account of creation was meant to say more than just this is the way it was. Both Jesus and Paul draw on these accounts to say this is the way it ought to be. In other words, the accounts acted as a paradigm setting the standard. So the guiding factor we see here in this creation encounter is that man and woman are made in the image of God and in His likeness. And if they're made in His image and His likeness, they are given, they are communicated attributes of God. So for instance, His holiness, His, his wisdom, His desire for justice, his, his desire to love, those are all attributes that are communicated to man and woman at creation. And so they are to act 
out on earth as types of gods, revealing God to the nations in, in, in their image and in His likeness. So, what we see is that we are bound by this covenant as to what we will pursue and will not pursue. If we are made in the image and likeness of God, we must pursue things that are in accord with that image and likeness. So if God tells us, hey, the best thing for you is to become one as husband and wife, then we are not free to pursue that which we desire otherwise because we are made in the image and likeness of God and we are bound by what pleases Him. Now, the fall messes that up, but it doesn't erase the fact that this is the way it's to be. So let's answer some uh, um, objections. That was kind of my 30,000-foot uh, biblical theological overview. Let's, let's answer some objections. So I have two pro-gay, pro-homosexual objections to what I have just stated. The first is this, what about gluttony and divorce? I actually think this is a really good objection. I think these things definitely need to be addressed in Christ's church. Why is it that we are able to call out homosexuality as sin, and yet we feed literally the beast of our self-pleasure through food? Why is it that we so quickly gloss over, and I'm not saying we here, church with a large C, the church at large, why is it that we gloss so quickly over divorce? I think these are really, really good objections that the liberal, those who believe that homosexuality is, is in line with Scripture, I think this is a good objection they make. Who are you to say this is wrong whenever you are living in sin? I think the root of these sins is exactly the same. It's self-righteousness. It's the desire to serve ourselves in the desire to fulfill our passions. Right? The same reason people act on their tendency to homosexuality is the same reason people act on their tendency to overeat and to find their worth and value and, and to feel good through food, though it is harmful to their body. I think uh, this is kind of like a selected, selective bigotry. So we are oftentimes called bigots whenever we disagree with some sort of other avenue, like homosexuality, for instance. But we're also bigoted about a lot of other things. Like, we're also bigoted when people call us out for our particular sins. Like, we want to call them out for theirs because we don't want to be exposed ourselves. I think the larger debate over homosexuality has been actually, don't get me wrong, a way that God has made His church healthier because it has revealed things about us that we were otherwise glossing over and not addressing, i.e. divorce. I mean, for such a long time in the church I grew up in, I knew people that were getting divorced, and it was like, oh yeah, you know, such and such got divorced. It's really a shame, isn't it? And I'm like, it, it is a shame. Like, I'm eight, and I realize that this is not good. And so we have been forced to look at these things because uh, there's, there's really, uh, look at Galatians 5. It, it's, it's not a matter of just, okay, well, you stick with your sin and I'll stick with mine and we'll figure it out. No, we need to call sin, sin, and as the church, we need to address sin where we see it because Galatians chapter 5 tells us 
the, the consequences are eternal. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What this has revealed to us is our very, very deep-seated need for Christ. That we need someone to not only atone for our sins, but intercede for us because we sin. I, I think I'm actually a glutton, not like a habitual glutton, but I think I have a tendency to gluttony in terms of cereal and ice cream. And you're going to laugh, I knew you would, but I'm being dead serious. And you're a glutton with cereal too, Robert. I know this about you. <laughs> Selective bigotry. Um, but if we're not going to actually confront these issues as being deadly serious, then we're going to just find ourselves being silent on these issues and then winding up not even inheriting the kingdom of God because we have found ourselves living in a pattern of sin that has become so normalized that it's not wrong, though it is scripturally sinful and inherently anti-God. So in a sense, I think this has been, been helpful for us in, in 2015 for, for gay marriage to be legalized in our country. I think it forced us to do something that we had not been doing well. But part two of this is that it shouldn't stop us from addressing sin as sin, right? So it's not, okay, well, you know, you sin, but I know I also sin. I'm a glutton and I'm um, whatever else you want to be. So you just stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. No, we should address sin as sin. Instead of being our own gods in regarding which sins we should condemn, we should be driven by the word to see what God demands. So when we find ourselves being confronted with our sin, we should be immediately driven to go to the word of God and see what the course of action is from that point. Right? So, okay, well, we have been pretty lax on gluttony and divorce and the issue of homosexuality has raised that issue in the church. So what does God's word say about gluttony and divorce? And how are we as a church going to confront it? The idea is that we confront sin and in so doing, we become a healthier church. We actually start peeling away the layers of sin that are hidden the things that are kind of put off in the corner and we just don't talk about. No, we bring them to light and we deal with them. We apply the word of God to them. We pursue righteousness. So look at uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, uh, 1 through 5. It's a, a very well-known passage. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The idea of taking the log out of your 
I, that is to address those sins which we have been glossing over in the church, the reason to take that out is so that we will then be able to care for others in identifying their sin and not condemning it outright, but coming alongside of them and applying the gospel to it. With the issue of homosexuality, how are we as a church going to be living in sin or allowing sin in certain areas and yet serve homosexuals well? How are we to go and identify the speck and take the speck out if we have logs in our eyes as a congregation? Well, the answer is that we can't. We've got to become the type of church who sees sin where it is at every degree and we address it. We apply God's Word to it. So, Objection number two from the pro-gay camp. God is a God of love. God would not condemn something that is committed to the pursuit of true love is often the mantra. God would not condemn something that is true. I am committed in this relationship to loving one person. Why would God condemn something when He Himself is love? My answer to that is that God is not so simplistic as that. The, the idea of God being a, a simplistic God is not the idea that He is simple, as in He is somehow lesser than some other God somewhere. The simplicity of God does not refer to Him as a person. It refers to the fact that He has revealed Himself as a communicable, relational, loving God who has all kinds of attributes and characteristics, that He is three persons in one God. And so to say, well, God is love, though, well, that's actually exactly right. God is love. Love doesn't define God, but neither does justice define God. God is justice. In terms of every good thing in the world, God is that thing. We don't have love and justice and righteousness and grace and mercy because they're just these qualities in the world. We have them because God is them. And being made in His image and likeness, we are representatives of those things in the world. And so to say, well, God is love, He will do that. No, God is also a bunch of other things. He is not simplistically love as if there's no other thing to consider. So, Let's, let's look at that. Isaiah 53, another well-known passage. And I kind of wanted to stick with like some well-known scriptures we use often in varying contexts. Uh, with Advent coming up and Christmas, Isaiah 53 will be on a Bible reading plan somewhere or some sort of devotion. And I think it's really good to understand how this text plays out apart from just Christmas. Like how this text informs us as we think about living lives of righteousness. So, verses, uh, uh, chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that being Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him 
a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. So what we see is that the full expression of God's love, what actually reveals God's love most clearly is Christ Jesus and him crucified, resurrected, and reigning at the right hand of God. Right? God's love is not just his like of affirmation, his assurance, his pat on the back and wrapping his arm around you. That's not simply the love of God to say, well, I'm committed to this person. It's a true loving relationship. God must think it's fine. Well, no, God's fullest expression of love is crushing his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, that those who have transgressed against him might be reconciled to him. So we, we don't ever want to view God as if he is swayed by affection. As if just because we are kind and loving and gracious people, God will somehow view us and give us a different standard of life than he would in Genesis chapter 2. So let's look at uh, objections from the pro-heterosexual camp. Number one, homosexuals aren't made this way. Well, um, I, I want to be clear, I agree, but I also want to add the clarifying remark, none of us were actually intended to be made this way. What, what do I mean by that? I think same-sex attraction is, is equal to the temptation to serial monogamy, is what I mean. If you think that homosexuals aren't inclined to a particular type of sin, that is same-sex attraction, but that it is okay for a man to be serially attracted to women and to objectify her with his eyes, we're sorely mistaken. So I think to have like this blanket statement of like, well, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Like, yeah, well, that's true, but is that helpful at all? Is that the way the church ought to respond? Are we that biblically inept that we can't make a loving, gracious, gospel-filled argument as to why this way of life leads to destruction? Matthew 5, uh, 27 and 28, it's, it's um, actually, let's turn there, it's worth it. Matthew, it's Jesus' words, they're red letter. Get with it. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Also well known. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's just stop there. That's enough. What we actually see in Jesus, as Jesus comes onto the stage in his ministry and his teaching ministry in particular and coming into the Sermon on the Mount here in, in chapter 5, is that there's actually a heightened awareness of the proclivity to sexual sin, right? That we as fallen sinners are even tempted to commit adultery in the way we even think. That is, we lust or desire something in a sinful way. We weren't created to be that way. We weren't born to be like that. 
as in our, our original mother and our father. But sin has so depraved us that this is who we are now. Right? This is the temptation that we face. Right? If we are constantly on our hobby horse about homosexuality and same-sex attraction and how that's not a thing, like a, a Christian couldn't be same-sex attracted because that's just an abomination, I'm thinking, I know a lot of brothers that have come to me and said, I need you to pray for me because my eyes are my downfall. I don't say, well, brother, you may not be a believer then. I say, this is something you're going to have to fight. The fall was all-encompassing. Your mind, your health, your body, your des- desires, the way you think, the way you reason, your logic is all affected by sin. Do we not think that that could extend to the idea of sexuality? That someone could be attracted to the same sex and yet not act on it? I don't see why not. I see nothing in Scripture that says, well, same-sex attracted people, those are the worst type of unbeliever. Mm. No, I think, I think the grandma who chews, cusses, and doesn't go to church, she's the worst. Don't tell my grandma because she'd be offended. Here's what I'm saying. The church needs to be careful not to isolate or discourage those fighting homosexual sin in their lives simply because we believe it is impossible to struggle with that sin and be a Christian. Don't let your conscience, don't let, I don't know if I should say that, your misunderstanding of the Bible leave people hurting, trying to fight their sin because you don't think it's something that is possible. And I feel pretty comfortable saying that because I was there not too long ago with that view. It's been years, but it's not that long. Uh, So let's go to the second objection. We'll skip. I want to get down to this pretty quickly. Uh, Let's just agree to disagree. Uh, So the the argument of let's just agree to disagree. There there can be believers that are homosexual and that, that have homosexual couples in their church. It's fine. Just let them do them. We'll do us. Let's, who cares? I think that is an effect of the normalization of homosexuality in our country. You see it in particular with liberal churches, those who have a a liberal theology, but I think you also just have it like by nature of younger people. It's like, why can't we just leave them alone and let them do their thing? Can't they just actually really be Christians and be misunderstanding? My, My answer to that is we need to be really careful that we don't minimize what Scripture clearly says about homosexuality. We need to be very careful as a church that we don't ever minimize sin in the world because it's inconvenient and we are called bigoted and we are picketed or any number of things. So the cost we pay for this type of idea, let's just agree to disagree. Let's stop having the conversation. It's fine. The cost we pay is that we minimize and distort God's word, and we end up introducing a false teaching into our churches and into our hearts. If you take the let's just agree to disagree avenue in terms of a biblical 
understanding of homosexuality, I do believe that you will eventually confuse yourself as to what is scriptural. If we falter in one area, we are so prone to the slippery slope of faltering elsewhere. So let's go to the third thing, navigating historic Christian conviction and loving others well. I do want to leave some time. We have an elders meeting tonight, so I don't want to leave too much time because uh, I want to get to that meeting. But navigating historic Christian conviction and loving others well. So what about the issue of gay weddings? I don't think it's black and white, but I think there is wisdom to be had from Scripture here. So what I'm saying when I say black and white, I don't think the answer is strictly and and. 100% confidently don't attend, and I don't think that it's also true that you should attend with 100% assurance. I think there is wisdom to be drawn from Scripture, and that's what we're going to look at. We're, we're, we're desiring at this point to be biblically informed in, in terms of our conscience. So how can Scripture bind us and form us as we think about these things well? So first off, gay marriage is, is not a real institution, because it is contradictory to the creation mandate, that thing we talked about in Genesis 2. So one man, one woman coming together in oneness, homosexuality is not a real institution as defined by the Bible. So we as believers actually can't acknowledge gay marriage as a reality. That may sound silly, but it's, it's true. We, we don't believe that that's a real thing. Country may say a man and a man can marry, or a woman and a woman can marry, or transgenders, or, or whatever. But in terms of the Bible, that's that's not an institution that God has created. It is an effect of the fall. It is introduced in Genesis three. So, here's the real question: What do we do if we're invited to a gay wedding? I think there are two dangers to attending a gay wedding. Again, this is not to say that if you've ever attended one, I, I'm not bashing you. Maybe you have some insight that I don't have, but I think there are two dangers inherent to attending a gay wedding. The one is this, undermining the magnitude of marriage as an expression of God uniting himself with his own in Christ. Undermining the magnitude of what marriage actually pictures. When we have a wedding, when we go to a wedding between a man and a woman, it's not just all the butterflies and she looks so beautiful and how did he ever land her. It's, wow, this is a physical expression of Christ bringing his bride to himself. He is standing there watching his bride come to him and uniting together with him. The danger of attending a same-sex marriage is you distort that picture and say that it is something other than what I have just said. The second is the danger of nonverbal affirmation, right? The affirmation that a wedding isn't a worship service of seeing Christ and His church come together. Right, look, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Right, this is not just a thing that we do. When you go to a wedding, you are affirming something. Your attendance affirms something. And if you don't clearly stand up and say, I'm affirming my gay daughter, then people can assume you're affirming a number of different things. 
it is open to interpretation as to why you are there. Ephesians 5, 31 and 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Right? What is happening is a beautiful picture of God bringing him, his people to himself through his son. To attend something that does not picture that is, in my opinion, unwise. Because you begin to see something that becomes normalized in your mind, though you say you don't agree. Okay, well, what about unbelievers? What about a man and a woman who are not believers? Well, I don't think there's any problem because it's a man and a woman coming together and they're not unequally yoked. There's, there's major problems with a Christian and an unbeliever coming together, but there are no problems inherent in Scripture with unbelievers marrying. Actually, it's glorifying to the Lord because it pictures correctly what Ephesians says. So let's just end with just this, this statement, and I'll take a couple questions. My, my whole point is this. I have quite a few gay family members, very close family members, um, and some that are a bit more distant. My desire is that we wouldn't be anti-gay, but that we would be pro-holiness. Does that make sense to you? My desire in our interactions with our loved ones, our neighbors, and when I say neighbors, I don't necessarily mean those on your right and your left, but your neighbor in the world is a believer. My desire is that we wouldn't be anti-gay when we go there into those places, that we would be pro-holiness, seeking to uphold the holiness of God and His righteous standard and sharing that standard through the person of Jesus Christ with the world. Questions? I didn't do a good job. I lied to you. Questions or clarifications or something that would be helpful in a short period of time? If you have something good, say it. Drew, resident theologian. Um, so you had mentioned... Oh. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You had mentioned the covenant yeah. um, that God reveals himself in successive covenants. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got... Uh, in the New Testament, there's no mention of tithing. And I believe this church teaches that uh, tithing is not mandated by God in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So how does that, and there's no successive covenant revealing that. How, how do you explain this? Yeah, so what happens when you have the new covenant replacing the old covenant? You have, um, and I think that there are three categories, and someone can help me. It's the ceremonial uh, portion of the law, the um, moral and ethical portion, and then what's the third one? Civil, yeah, civil. So like the way in which Israel conducts themselves as a society. So what we understand that the new covenant to be doing is not erasing any of the moral, um, logical portions of the old covenant. So when we would look at something like tithing, that doesn't speak in particular to a gospel matter per se, right? One could say, okay, well, I'm going to tithe 10% and I'm going to tithe 50%. Well, you can still be a believer and hold to either of those things. You're not changing or modifying the gospel at all. However, something 
uh, let's, let's look at like a, a social aspect. Like we can't wear um, like cotton. Well, that has no bearing on the gospel at all. That was a way in which Israel would live called out and different than the world around them, right? It was a societal, a societal norm that set them apart in the world differently. And so when you have like, for instance, like food loss, for instance, like uh, Paul and Peter actually realize, okay, well, the, the food was made for the stomach. There's really nothing we can't eat. Right? We're set apart in the gospel and by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, not by being this civil society. So that's, you, you, gotta, you have to do biblical theology, but what I'm saying was a 30,000 foot, like we can't just apply scriptures to a covenant and say, you, you can't piecemeal a covenant away with varying favorite proof texts. You must understand the succession of, of covenants and how they reveal God and how they... Um, uh, actually explain a previous covenant more fully. Does that help? It's, a, it's not such a simple answer. Um, so, when you're interacting with anyone who either struggles or just doesn't think it's wrong, obviously, like you're saying, like, the first thing that you're not going to say to someone who you know that's an unbeliever is just start calling out all of their sins. Why would you do it to someone who is gay? Mm. Um, is there a point, though, where you have to, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Or is it just that you're presenting the gospel, you're preaching the gospel to someone like you would anyone else, and you're just calling them away from their sin? Yeah, I think that's a part of being being wise, being a person of the word, being someone that is spiritually in tune with God, someone that um, is spiritually disciplined in their relationship with the Lord, is that I think you do become more attuned to um, what is right and what is appropriate and when. Um, so, for instance, my, my sister is gay, and, um, you know, I just try to love and care for her, but when my grandmother passed away, I realized that as we were all like contemplating our own mortality, this would be a really easy way just to bring up the idea of death. And so I said, hey, let me walk you out to her girlfriend that was down the hall. And uh, on the way out, I just grabbed her arm and I said, hey, Stacy, what happens to you when you die? And she just broke down and started crying. And her response to me was, I know that I'm living in sin. I know that this is wrong. And she wrote me a Facebook message uh, a couple hours later and just said, hey, thank you for loving me. Like, I know you don't agree with this. I know this. I know this. And I just responded, hey, I care for you. I love you. And there's always forgiveness found in Christ. I think as you, so, so, so the idea of you, my sister saying, hey, Tyler, um, will you come to my wedding? I'm going to say, Stacy, you know I can't. And I can say, Stacy, you know I can't because she has seen a pattern of love and care and this answer of no is not culminating in, I would never do that. It's culminating in a life of love and care and, and a, a tender pursuit with the gospel. I, I think that's what we have failed to do when we isolate people in their sins, is that we kind of come to a head at these big major debates, when in reality we could just love people you know, all along, like walk through them with life, like be with them and around them and encouraging them and, and reaching out to them. And uh, I think as you do that, well, you will just, the Lord pray for, for avenues to engage them so specifically on the gospel.
But people are complex, and that's not always going to happen like that. I have relationships that are, are torn and fragile and broken over this issue. But one thing I know is that God is sovereign and that my words, while they can be hurtful, they can never overcome the sovereignty of God in salvation. And so that's my hope. We have maybe one more question. Does that help? Is that one more? Nothing? Okay. Last question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, first of all, thank you. Oh, so sorry. First of all, thank you for uh, sharing what you shared uh, tonight. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, right now the majority of Americans, I think, are for gay marriage, and I think the, those, the number of those who approve gay marriage is increasing. And so um, it's, it seems like it, it is a, it's affecting the culture, and it is a cultural thing now. Do you think, in your opinion, do you think Christian Americans can... Uh, steer th that culture back uh, away from that kind of that kind of culture, and if so, how? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you guys will like my answer. Um, I'm not optimistic, and the reason I say so is because I think that what is happening in our political climate is that we are all actually becoming a little bit more liberal, and we don't even realize it. So I think oftentimes we think of the, the terms of like left and right, liberal, conservative. We think that on that scale, those things move. But I think what is actually happening is the entire foundation of that scale is liberalizing. And those on the scale don't realize it's happening. I say that because 15 out of 16 of the uh, Republican candidates for the nominee um, have views of abortion that have a stipulation. I don't know how we got there, you know. And so in terms of homosexuality, I, I think it would be really difficult to change an entire institution. So I'm not optimistic, but the answer is yes. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be believers. Um, I'm, I'm more concerned, though, that we love people well and that we pluck them from the gates of hell rather than um, being so consumed with, with changing our country. Um, I think that we, we want to do both, but in terms of what's most important, it is um, people coming to know the Lord. That's not a good answer, but that's my answer to you. Um, you had one more. For the, if anyone needs to leave, just please get up and go, but we have just one more. I just wanted to give you the opportunity. Thanks. Um, I just wanted to ask you about your first point under pro-heterosexual objections. Yeah, sure. Um, so you said the objection is homosexuals aren't made this way. Sure. So you're saying that um, maybe Christians or heterosexuals were, would just say, well, people are not made that way. Is that kind of what you're saying tends to be the argument? So. <laughs> and then from there, yeah. are you saying that really we shouldn't even, as Christians, necessarily be honing in on that? Yeah, so uh, first off, um, Lady Gaga has a song that says, I was born this way, hey? Um, <laughs> and so uh, just our, our culture, like the, the idea is that if, if this is intrinsically who I am, then it can't be wrong. And so we as the church have reacted and said, no, you're not born that way. And what I'm saying is we need to not be so harsh to say you're not born that way whenever we have things in our own lives that we'd be like, 
yeah, I mean, I guess I was born with this inclination to ice cream or this inclination to desire every woman that I see or this inclination to be obsessed with my body and my clothing. Um, so that's kind of really more where I was going. Is it, it, That objection is just an insensitivity that the church has shown, and I think it has made it really difficult for us to minister well to um, our our brothers and sisters that struggle with same-sex attraction, right? We don't make it, we don't give them an avenue to come forward with courage and, and desiring to be helped. We actually make it to where we like want, they, they need to almost like hide, like this better never get out because my church is going to freak out. Well, that shouldn't be the case. I'm telling you right now, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want you to come to me so I can love you and help you and fight my sin as you fight your sin. Was there a second part? Was that it? Or? No, that was great. Okay. I guess I thought, I think sometimes we get on this issue of, oh, homosexuals are born this way, or yeah, yeah. no, they're not. And then it becomes an argumentative thing about that's really not relating to sin and yeah. not sin. That's right. So yeah. I wondered if that's kind of what you were saying. Yeah, we are all born into sin and depraved um, by our sin. That's it. Uh, thank you all for coming. This was the last midweek fellowship, and now all of the elders in our elder meeting are going to give me scowls because we're 12 minutes over. Thank you.